It's really difficult to find great executives. Spear Consulting helps organizations find all-star executives and hire the right one using work psychology so you can serve more customers and grow your business. To get a free quote, go to spiritmco.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Virtuous Heroes podcast. So excited to be able to have our guest Ray on today. Ray, thank you for joining us. Um, just very excited about being able to dive into the book that you wrote and, and your life's work. I'm um, just incredibly blessed to be able to get to have a meeting of the minds with you today. So with that said, tell us uh, who you are. Thanks, Chris. Very happy to be here. Um, so I'm a, I'm a family man. I've uh, been married to uh, my wife, Laura, for 36 years. I have three children, uh, three grandchildren. I'm a permanent deacon, Catholic deacon in the Archdiocese of Boston. I have been for 17 years. I work full-time in the healthcare industry. I work with organizations that are going through change. Um, love photography and being outside. If I had my brothers, I would be outside all, all the time, uh, but it doesn't pay the bills very well, so here I am. <laughs> so a Catholic deacon for 17 years, you said? Yeah. Wow. Uh, um, tell me about that journey. How did you uh, first hear the call for that? Uh, um, you know, I've, I've spent a, a good bit of my life um, talking to people who are discerning the diaconate uh, or, you know, in, uh, or contemplating becoming a Catholic. And, you know, the faith stories are oftentimes, um, you know, contain some dramatic events. Um, they, they, you know, at a minimum, they can be just very, very interesting. Um, my own story has none of that. Um, my, my story is more of the, you know, sort of persistent, gentle whisper. And so um, my, my, uh, my own discernment story began when I was in high school. I went to a Catholic high school taught by the Zavarian brothers, and I overheard a conversation um, by one of the brothers, Paul Feeney, who was uh, talking to another person, don't remember who, I just happened to overhear it, and he mentioned that the permanent diaconate, two words I had never heard before, had been uh, reinstated and that the Archdiocese of Boston was beginning its first class and that he had been asked to come and teach a, uh, a scripture course. Um, I don't know why that stands out in my mind. It's just the first time I ever heard the words. Um, then a little while after that, um, uh, we actually had a deacon in our parish where I grew up, and he was a very gentle, uh, nice man. Um, I respected him very much. He had no liturgical role, so I, assume, I assumed that deacons didn't have any liturgical role. They were just sort of in the shadows in the background, which, which he was, but he was very effective. He did a lot without any fanfare, and I remember that that, that um, struck a chord with me as well. Um, about 10 years after I heard that uh, brother, uh, Brother Paul Feeney, say those words, I actually sent him an email. I had been doing a little bit of research on it, and it just, it, it was like this persistent thought that just kept going through my mind. And I just, I wrote him a, a letter, actually, and I still have the letter. Um, and I just said, would you be willing to talk to me about this? You know more about it than anybody I know. And he said yes, and that then began 
uh, basically a 10-year, first by paper and then eventually by email, relationship with this man. Um, so that 20 years after I heard him say those words, I actually applied to the program. And wouldn't you know, he was still teaching in that program. He's been a lifetime you know, friend and mentor of mine, great man, um, has had a huge impact on me. Um, but my discernment for the diaconate story and my faith story obviously can't be separated. Um, and my faith journey uh, began at a young age. Um, a lot of people fall away and then come back for a variety of reasons. Um, I can't even offer that. I, I have been in this from the beginning, uh, but I would say I, I was pretty, you know, sort of uh, neutral about it for many years. Uh, you know, I went to mass and I, I, the sacraments were important to me and I, I was, I was, I was excellent on paper. Um, but then a few things happened in my life that tugged at my heart and then I really invested and I can just say it's the greatest thing I ever did. And 17 years later, uh, I'm so pleased and so fortunate that this found me. Um, it's had a huge impact on my life. Well, thank you. I, yeah, I, I look at, you know, we have a couple different deacons at my parish, or at my parents' parish. And I, I'm always, um, I don't just, I guess it's just in the back of my mind of thinking about, hmm, maybe one day that's something that I might want to <laughs> venture into the journey of becoming a deacon. And uh, so thank you for sharing that story. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how sometimes the smallest interactions that you have no idea whatsoever <laughs> of the work that you're doing and the way that it affects people. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit works in that way. So uh, deacons, Bodoni, do you, um, so in your, in the diaconate, do you also get to serve mass and, and preach at masses as well? I do. I assist at mass. I preach. I, I participate in baptisms and you know weddings when it's not a sacramental uh, marriage. Um, I get to uh, accompany people as they're recovering from illness or as they're um, facing challenges in their lives. And you know, much like that first deacon I met, um, I'm involved in a variety of things that are a little bit more in the background, which is, which is where they should be. Uh, but I do get to have a liturgical role. So yes, I do get to assist at mass. Yeah. So I'm just curious, cause you know, always, you know, uh, anytime the Eucharist comes anywhere near the altar, just, just, uh, you know, always head down in prostrate position. So just absolutely love the mass. There's nothing better in the world than that. And uh, just thinking about being able to be a part of that, as a layperson, um, and just the the blessing that that really is. So, just kind of curious as to like what it feels like to be able to have the honor to be able to preach at a mass. Well, honor is exactly the right word. I mean, it's it's extremely humbling. Um, it's it's had a tremendous impact on my prayer life because when I preach, so I'm preaching in a couple of days. Um, beginning the the weekend before, I become familiar with the, the readings for the coming week, and I just uh, I don't I don't research I, I don't uh, you know I make sure if there are things in the scripture just so I understand the context there are some places I can go and I'll and I'll read 
what happens just before and just after a gospel story, that sort of thing, because that often tells a lot. Um, and I'll make the connections between the third, you know, the, between the gospel and the first reading, which there's typically connections there. In the second reading, there are connections week to week. So I'll, I'll do research in that regard, but I don't want to read, you know, homily prep sources and other kinds of things because I, I just want to let it sort of come to me. And so I just pray about it. And I just, I pray about those readings and I just say, what, what would, what would the Lord like me to say about these things? And uh, typically something comes up, um, you know, I, there may be triggers in my day-to-day life. There may be something I see on TV, something I read in the paper, um, you know, something from a spiritual book that I'm reading that relates. And um, usually by the time I get to the weekend, uh, it comes together. Um, and so when I don't preach, the weeks I don't preach, I, I try to pretend I'm going to preach and I try to go through the same process. Um, but I, I think I maybe I need that spark and pressure to know that I have to get up for a couple of masses on a Sunday. Um, but that spark, that pressure coupled with being very prayerful about it, um, it's, it's fantastic. I, I love doing it, um, but it is, it's very humbling. It's a great honor. And I realized, I realized a long time ago uh, that it's not about me, um, that, you know, I'm quite sincere when I ask, is there something you need me to say to this congregation this week? And um, typically something comes up that facilitates that. So for our listeners that are not Catholic, uh, the last time I checked, the diaconate is not a paid position, correct? Correct. So this is something that you do out of your love for Jesus and, um, and just wanting to, to give back. So in addition to this work, you're, you also have a professional career. Can you speak about that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, I've worked for many, many years, uh, several decades now within the, uh, for the most part, healthcare space uh, with an emphasis on mission-driven not-for-profit organizations. Um, typically those uh, that are at a crossroads, uh, maybe experiencing some type of a decline or a challenge, uh, maybe even some kind of a deeper existential threat, you know, trying to figure out if they can continue on. Um, and I have done some work to help transform them, to facilitate changing the trajectory that they're, that they're on, always working with uh, teams to try to do that and to create lasting change. Um, anybody can, uh, well, not anybody, but it's, it's not that hard to create quick changes. It's not that hard to change the trajectory for a short period of time. Uh, but generally, these organizations have bigger, deeper wounds than that. And so the organizations that are looking to do something that really sort of changes their future, I've really been drawn to that. Um, I'd love to tell you that I set out to do this work, but having worked as a consultant at a big accounting firm uh, for the first part of my career and then the second part of my career at a large managed care company that was going through a lot of changes, kind of woke up one day and just had this realization that after 20 years in a career in these two main jobs, I had only been working with organizations that were going through change. Um, and I thought, okay, well, uh, this is what I do. Um, seems to have a knack for it. I seem to enjoy it. And so then I just more intentionally set out to work with those kinds of organizations. But because of a few things that happened in my career and in my life, I really wanted to focus on organizations that were mission-driven, 
not-for-profit, trying to make a difference in people's lives, trying to do something that was unique and important um, and, and, as I said, impactful. And I've had the good fortune of being able to work with a number of those organizations, and I continue to do that. Awesome. Uh, so in addition to both of those things, you also wrote a book called uh, Saving Organizations That Matter. Why did you write that book? Uh, a, few, a few years ago, um, as I was doing this work, I began to think about the fact that there were a lot of common threads in the, in the work that I had done. And sometimes that has been as a consultant, sometimes that has been as the CEO of an organization, um, that there were a lot of sort of commonalities, not only in terms of the things that get these organizations in trouble in the first place, uh, but also the kinds of things that help them uh, improve their situation. And um, as, I, as I started to contemplate that, I thought, boy, you know, the organizational culture is often underappreciated or underrepresented um, in the work that gets done. Because a lot of times it's all about cutting costs and, you know, trying to figure out ways to change the change workflows and work processes or to, you know, reduce the cost of goods sold and all the kinds of things you do. Um, but generally speaking, if the deeper underlying issues related to that organization's culture aren't remedied, they're going to be back in the same situation just a few years later. Sometimes some of the names will change at the top, but those deeper wounds, those deeper issues have got to be addressed. And that's been something I've been very much interested in. So I just started to accumulate notes on my computer, you know, thoughts about what some of these common threads were. And I thought, you know, someday, someday I'm going to write a book. Someday I'm going to write a book about this. Um, you know, for anybody who wants to write a book, um, I think anybody who confronts that also, if they're being honest, has to say, can I do it? Do I have a book here? You know, or do I have an article? You know, do I, do I have, do I have the equivalent of, 25 interesting post, post-it notes, or is this actually a, a, a coherent book that could come together? I didn't know. Um, so, but I knew I had all these notes. And um, then the pandemic hit. And I found that some of the things, including many related to my diaconate, I couldn't do anymore. And so um, I found I had some time. And um, I, I like to jokingly say, um, I, I could either just jump onto Netflix and, you know, sort of, you know, do things that weren't as productive, or I could see if I actually had a book there. And um, it turns out I did. And so uh, in March of this year, it was published and um, uh, it's, it was a great process. It was an incredible learning experience to write the book. Um, it, was a, uh, it, it was surprising in, in many respects. Uh, but now that it's out, it's been a fun thing to have done. And, um, you know, people I know who've written books say that when you write a book, um, sometimes you can't wait to write the next one. And I thought, well, that's not going to be me. You know, when I, when I got it done, I said, that's that. I'm going back to Netflix. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I'm working on my second book. Have you been feeling unfulfilled? You want to be happy, but just continue to struggle. One of the best ways to experience joy is by caring for the homeless. A charity I've grown to love, River of Light, food rescues a million meals per year for the needy in Chicago. 
Imagine how that make you feel, knowing that you're helping feed children and veterans. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit riverlightchicago.org. Again, riverlightchicago.org. No one should go to bed hungry. Awesome. Hey, congratulations. That's so exciting. And as a uh, aspiring um, author myself, it's just uh, gives me that extra oomph of courage and inspiration to want to continue through with it as well. And thank you for uh, uh, the work that you did there. So to dive into that a little bit, can you give us kind of like the overview of maybe some of the characteristics of organizations that are chaotic versus ones that have healthy cultures? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I use this, this, um, this image that comes up over and over in, again in the book, this notion of a boat that is sailing and coming up close to the edge of a waterfall. Um, and, you know, I, I have one section of the book entitled, There's Always a Waterfall. And this gets at sort of the essential challenge of leadership. Um, you know, if, if you look at the boat and its crew as sort of your typical organization, leaders are tasked with paying attention to not only what happens outside of the boat, but also what's happening inside the boat. They're uniquely positioned. They have more access to, to information. They have a higher degree of accountability. And they can sort of look at what's happening outside, whether those are threats or opportunities, the, the monsters that are hiding under the bed that will get you if you don't do something, or the sort of brass rings you can reach for um, with some effort um, and with some you know, sort of systematic planning, you can actually achieve those brass rings. And that's what leaders do. They, 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 they pay attention to what's happening outside of the boat. But inside of the boat, you got to make sure that you're effective and efficient and that the, you know, the trains are running on time and so forth. But then there's that culture thing. You have to pay attention to the culture. Now, when I say there's always a waterfall, every ship is approaching a waterfall. The essential challenge of leadership is that when the boat doesn't feel like it's anywhere near the waterfall and it, the water's calm and you can't see it, you can't hear it, there's no mist. The essential challenge of leadership when there are threats and when change needs to happen, including risky change, is to mobilize the organization because they're not feeling it. It's to create a sense of urgency without seeming like you're chicken little and trying to you know, create urgency for the sake of urgency. The essential challenge of leadership when your boat is coming up and is closer to the waterfall is not to create a sense of urgency. Everyone can see the waterfall, they can hear it, they can feel it, there's mist all around them. The essential challenge at that point in time is to get everyone engaged in rowing or you know, sort of performing their tasks. Um, and of course, at that point in time, the current, the pull is so much harder. And so I talk about organizations that are sort of in various stages along this progression from there's a waterfall, but you're not too close to it, all the way up to the organizations that are right there. So it's a book basically that is meant to be very practical. Um, it's a book that many years ago in my own career, I wished existed. Um, I couldn't find it. Um, there are books about organizational change, but I thought as I've read them, is that they can be a little bit theoretical, um, a little bit, I hate to say it, academic. I mean, we, we need an academic approach to this, um, and it's very helpful. But I've been in organizations that were in free fall. I've been in organizations 
that where there were toxic work environments. I've been in organizations where I had a limited amount of time to, to sort of change that trajectory. And so I was looking for something that was as close to a way to gain my sea legs as possible. Um, so that's kind of what the book is about. I talk about some of these different things. Um, and I do go into some detail about the characteristics of organizations that are uh, typically uh, experiencing decline, uh, the kinds of things that can happen and the, and the elements of the culture. Uh, and then I talk about things that leaders need to do in order to revive, revise, change that culture in a more positive direction. And there are a number of things which I'd be happy if, if you'd like, I'd be happy to talk about a couple of each. Yeah, yeah, let's go. Okay. Um, you know, so um, I'm not one to, um, to demonize the, the profit motive at all and to, you know, to say that, especially in places like healthcare, that for-profit organizations are doing bad things and not-for-profits are doing good things. Uh, but I will point out that for-profits have a clarity of purpose. They have a means, a quicker means of, of measuring success. And oftentimes, not that they always have to do things to improve profitability, but that's a consistent marker that they can judge their actions and their, and their decisions against. In not-for-profits, it can get more complicated because a lot of times there are sponsoring organizations. There can be a history. The organization I work for has a 110-year history. Um, it can be called to action when there are public health crises. Um, and, you know, forget about profitability and forget about things um, where you're sort of mandated to do different things. Uh, there can be a lot of, um, you know, sort of um, doing God's work mindset, you know, so, um, so you got to give us more leeway because we're doing God's work. Um, but I think there are particular challenges that are specific to not-for-profits. Um, one is uh, there are not-for-profits when failure actually becomes the norm, it becomes sort of normalized where an organization can uh, have declining profitability, can have poor outcome scores and quality measures and so forth. But there's sort of this woe, woe is us, you know, the world is hard. There's a lot of regulations. There's, you know, there's a lot of bad things happening out there. And this is as good as it gets. And an organization and their volunteer not-for-profit board can be lulled into a form of comatose. And uh, pulling out of that can be very difficult because to sort of point your finger or to shine your light on this and to say, well, we need to hold ourselves to, to a higher standard in a couple of areas can be viewed as pretty countercultural, and, and, and people can push up against that. Um, another characteristic is one where in some organizations, self-protective behaviors of, of leaders, of board members, of, of sponsoring organizations can become greater than the mission itself. And so, you know, this, is, this will happen when a sponsoring organization is drawing funds from an organization because that sponsoring organization needs the funding, even if it's to the detriment of the organization that they sponsor. Or where you may have a leader who... Um, is unwilling to make dramatic, bold changes because they're going to retire in three or four years and they would just assume sort of lay low, 
let the organization continue. And then, you know, and ultimately they do that to the detriment of their organization. Um, and then finally, I mean, there are, there are a number that I go through in the book, but, you know, one is this notion of a, a bleakness um, where the number of people who understand what's actually happening financially is a small number and, and oftentimes declines over time. It gets smaller and smaller. Um, you know, sometimes you'll see an organization where the entire senior leadership team is routinely invited to board meetings. And then there'll be a shift made to only the CEO and the CFO are allowed to go to the board meetings, uh, which that does terrible things to the leadership team because it creates a, an us-them, you know, sort of inner bunker mentality and then everybody else mentality, which generally isn't very helpful. Um, but it can also create um, more questions about what's actually happening in the organization and one of two things can happen in my experience. One is people can panic because they will read into that uh, negatively or like the first one I mentioned, they can say, well, everything must be fine. And that contributes to the organization basically falling asleep and allowing itself to get dangerously up close to the edge of the waterfall without even knowing it until they're right up there. Um, so those are a couple of examples of the kinds of things that happen in organizations, particularly not-for-profits. Um, in terms of uh, some of the things that managers can do to shift the culture, um, I spent some time in the book talking about uh, transparency. This is, the, this is the antidote to the obliqueness thing, where um, I encourage organizations to, um, to share the information, to have its key performance uh, indicators Public, public knowledge. Um, I worked at an organization that had um, really abysmally low member service scores in terms of call times, answering phones, you know, um, resolving claims issues and so forth. And so we created something that we called the Monday Report, which were weekly metrics, um, which we forwarded to a number of our customers. So the ones who were complaining to us, we send them a report every Monday telling them how we were doing, that captured the imagination and the attention of the organization. Um, I also worked for a large post-acute company that had extremely low uh, patient satisfaction scores. So we decided to talk about that. Uh, and, you, know, you don't want to alarm the organization. You have to talk about it and say, this is what we think about it. This is what we need to do about it. You, know, you, you, have, to, you have to get into a solution uh, mindset. But in the lobby of that organization, we put um, a, a big graph showing uh, the industry average for patient satisfaction and then our scores, which were quite low. And um, this was a little bit controversial at first. Um, not everybody loved this. Um, I can tell you that. But I will tell you that as the numbers began to improve, the organization began to rally around this improvement. It created a point of excitement. Uh, it was a sort of common denominator for the organization. It was like a rallying point. And then when the, the bar graph went above the industry standard and then went into the highest levels, well, then everybody was proud of the fact that we had been so bad and we had gotten so good. Um, so, you know, I sort of put this in the category of transparency, I even talk about in the book this notion of radical transparency. Um, 
you know, I talk about active listening. Um, you know, every, every manager will say, well, I, I listen to employees, and, and most do. Uh, but active listening is a little bit different. It's, it's talking to your, your team, talking to your employees, taking notes, thinking about what you, what you heard, and then playing it back and saying to someone, this is what I heard you say. It's, it's just something people do, right? But this can, be, this can be used very effectively in a corporate context. Um, you know, here the classic example is every organization that I've been part of does employee engagement surveys and you, know, you sort of look at morale and, and all that stuff. Um, and then you get all this data and you don't really know what to do with it. So most companies will just play it back for employees and say, well, here's our scores and here's what we did pretty well and this is what we didn't do very well. And then it just sort of dies a slow death of inactivity. Um, I think it's incumbent on leaders to say, this is what this tells us. This is what we heard. And we heard a bunch of things. This and these two things, we're going to work on this. And we're going to work on this and we're going to talk to you and we're going to get your feedback and we're going to get your input. Um, and it's to sort of change the dynamic. That can have a, a positive impact on a uh, corporate culture. Um, trying to think of uh, the next one I would go through. Um, I, I guess the last one I'll mention, Chris. Yeah, is, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Um, the last one I'll mention is that um, one observation I've made is that in good organizations or, or organizations that are improving, there's this phenomenon in the culture that I refer to as tunnels of fire that management teams will run through tunnels of fire. Uh, you know, employees, uh, work groups, departments will run through tunnels of fire. They will do something that, you know, no one in their right mind would choose to do if, if given the choice. Like, why would you run through a tunnel of fire? But organizations accomplish great things, um, you, know, you know, sort of lift great weights, uh, sort of in some cases beyond expectations, when there are two things that happen. The first is that there's vision for what's on the other side of that tunnel of fire. And it's part of leadership's role is to create a compelling story about what's there. It has to resonate. This is the, this is the message of hope. This is what lies on the other side of it. And better leaders are really good at this. You know, this is not pipe dream stuff. This is not selling and spinning and, and you know, getting people to do things they wouldn't want, want to do. You have to give somebody something that they can hope for and believe in, and, and people will run through tunnels of fire. The second important characteristic is they have to trust the people they're running with. Um, generally speaking, work groups, when people trust each other, um, they'll, they'll run through a tunnel of fire. They'll do great things because they know that there are people there who've got their back, that if they take risks, if they uh, you know, start to fall into danger, they're going to be well protected by that work group. So vision, trust. Um, and in the book, I, I, I say, well, like, what does it mean, vision? How do you storytell the mission? And then trust. What what creates trust and what kinds of things have to be done or can be done in an organization to build trust. In some respects, it's no different than life. It's no different than really 
any relationship that we have is we can do great things if we have hope and trust. Um, so those are some of the things that I talk about in the book. Yeah, so uh, I guess my follow-up question to all that of doing active listening with you throughout what you just said is like if we would take the beginning part of this conversation about the diaconate and then, and then writing a book called Saving Organizations That Matter, do you ever sometimes like think or just is, is it hard sometimes to be involved in different parish committees? Because I would imagine that a lot of this stuff would also play into the local like parish level too. Because I just, I mean, as you started to rattle off kind of like a, a lot of the issues that organizations that are struggling with, as we know, like the, the decline of, of church membership is like across the board throughout the United States down historically. So, so yeah, just thinking about, um, you know, some of those principles that you talked about, uh, yeah, I, 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 I kind of feel like that, that to me, you know, specifically like spending your career and life and helping organ. I mean, that definitely fits into that too. And then having a passion for it, just thinking about how that affects the Catholic church, how the Catholic church is currently like, you know, I think a lot of organizations are guilty of a lot of things that you just communicated about some of those, um, unhealthy characteristics, but, Specifically in the Catholic Church, I think I think we've um, definitely been guilty of a lot of the things that you just talked about. Well, we we, um, we live in interesting times. Our institutions have largely failed us, and you know we 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 now have a culture that that does not trust institutions. Um, any institution you can think of has fallen victim to this, and so. Um, when you add to that the fact that there's a lot of, you know, self-determination and, you know, sort of moral relativism, which is, you know, I can sort of set my own way. It's no wonder that the Catholic Church is struggling. Um, you know, it's interesting you should say that because when I wrote the book, what I had in mind were the healthcare and the human service organizations I've known. Um, I had an inkling here and there that there was some connection to the church, but it was fairly weak. Uh, since the book has been out, I've gotten some reviews from people in churches. Um, I, I don't know what churches they are, they, they don't say, but I've gotten some reviews from people in churches, and I know that one Catholic bishop um, got the book, and I've heard people say that they're seeing some uh, parallels to the church. Um, you know, kind of one of the, the central themes of my life is how do I piece this together? And I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I um, yeah, I just because, you know, if we think about it, and I'm not, like, the, the last thing that I want to do is because, like, you know, I, I've never been, I've never, I, I never have and never will be <laughs> having the responsibility of all the lives as part of my parish and being the pastor, being a priest and pastor of an organization. Um, you know, uh, uh, God bless each of those for having to deal with that, with the limited amount of volunteers to be able to help out with the scattered uh, budgets that they're dealing with, et cetera. I can only imagine what that would possibly look like. But I think about like just looking across church history of how we've also not been very transparent with, with a lot of our, our failings and then, you know, putting, as you mentioned, the number two, like putting people on pedestals and, and uh, you know, giving too much power and authority to them uh, just kind of like set you up for, for uh, 
just kind of the situation that we're falling into today. So anyways, I just, I thought that was interesting as I was thinking about like, you know, you're specifically talking about mission-based organizations and the work that you've done there and just seeing kind of like specifically into the church and how that would apply. But uh, thank you for the work that you're doing, Ray, and uh, excited to see how this also blesses organizations. And, and uh, uh, I know you mentioned that it's published. How can people uh, get access to the book that you wrote? Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, it's, it's in a bunch of places, but um, most people go to Amazon. Uh, it's where most of the sales have come. And so it's, um, if you just go to, if you go to um, Amazon and type in saving organizations that matter, or my name, Ray Spadoni, Ray is spelled with an E. Um, it's short for Reynolds. Um, and, uh, you know, you can find it there. I also have a website where I put some press clippings and other sorts of things just called savingorganizations.com. Um, you can get to it uh, from that as well. Awesome. And then if people want to get a hold of you, uh, what is the best means to do that as well? You know, at savingorganizations.com, there's a contact page. Uh, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, you know, uh, under Ray Spadoni, and I'm available on Twitter at, at, uh, at Ray Spadoni. And again, it's, it's Ray with an E, but um, I, can be, I can be found in all those places. Awesome. Well, we'll include that in the show notes as well. And uh, yeah, just wanted to thank our listeners for joining us on the Virtuous Heroes podcast, where we inspire virtuous leadership. Ray, I think you uh, definitely model that perfectly. So thank you for the work that you've done for, for mission-based organizations, as well as being able to take your life's work, put it into, like have the courage and perseverance to actually put it into a book and to be able to share that for, uh, you know, being your legacy for years and years well after you're gone. So that's wonderful. Uh, kudos to you, friend, and uh, look forward to continuing the dialogue with you as well. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you for the work you're doing. Um, the, uh, the interviews that you're doing here as part of this podcast are inspiring, and it's, it's helpful to hear stories uh, because we're all just trying to find our way forward. And, you know, the more we can learn from each other, I think the better off we'll all be. So, so thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, no worries. Uh, blessings to you, Ray. Hey, Chris here. Hope you enjoyed the episode where we discussed all things going bald. <laughs> just joking. If you enjoyed the episode and the podcast, will you please subscribe on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Or you could also share it with a friend. That would be tubular. I hope you have an awesome day.